Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and how I forgot to write an intro this week. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing good, Joe. How are you doing this week? Oh, pretty good. We've got a little bit of follow-up, not really from anybody but me, so I'll follow up with myself. Um, we talked a little bit about Apple's weird software release schedule last week, and it gets weirder where they actually pulled the iOS 13.1 date ahead by a week, having previously announced it would be September 30th. So it seems like that will be out tomorrow. And I think, although I couldn't really find confirmation of this, that iPad OS, assuming that'll be 13.1 as well, should be released tomorrow. Currently, uh, iPad OS hasn't come out at all. So things are starting to calm down and the regular updates are getting out. The one that is bugging me is the uh, total lack of Apple TV update yet. And that's just because I want to play lots of Apple Arcade games. Normally, I couldn't care less about a TVS, TVOS update. But Yeah, I, I can't figure out whether moving iOS 13.1 up means they think it's readier than it was before or whether it's because they realize that 13.0 is more of a car wreck, so they need to rush 13.1 out. Yeah, I don't really know. There was a a 13.1 beta 4 update last week, and I've had more bugs in the last three days than all summer. So oh. if that says anything. Well, good. Really looking forward to this one. I think it's going to yeah. be about 13.3 before I actually end up installing it. Yeah, this has been a rough year. Apple just doing too many things. And yeah, too a little too ambitious this year, I think. I can't wait until yeah January or so when everything is just boring and stable. <laughs> Let's do a new segment called Ergonomic Update, a segment about Ow. <laughs> um, I just wanted to take a minute to gripe about something. So we talked at the beginning of the show about I've got some RSI issues. And one of the reasons I was switching back to an iMac and getting away from the laptop was to try to deal with some of those issues. And for the most part, this summer has been pretty good. You know, I've, I've been much better about my posture. I've got a good keyboard that I like uh, getting rid of the keyboard with a number pad is the biggest improvement for me because having to move my hand so far to the right to use a mouse or a trackball was really just putting my arm in the wrong position. And then hmm. to try to compensate that, I would end up pushing the keyboard over and would be in a very you know, off balance way. So I've got, I kind of go back and forth between a mechanical keyboard and that tiny Magic Keyboard 2 that Apple ships with the iMac. So I use both of those throughout the week, uh, depending on what I'm doing. I'm, I write most of the code with the mechanical keyboard, and I tend to do any writing, emails, and stuff like that with the other keyboard or on the iPad. But uh, I noticed something recently within the last couple of weeks. Every once in a while, I, I kind of lose the ability to use this trackball mouse. And I have to put it away for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and then I'm fine again. But uh, there was something you said about standing at the desk more often than sitting. 
And I have mostly been using my desk sitting for the last couple of years. I have a standing desk and I just never really got into reliably using it in standing up mode. But I noticed that I can use a mouse for a much longer period of time in standing mode than when I'm sitting. And I think it has to do with the fact that I start resting my hand on the mouse when I'm sitting. And I don't do that. I, I tend to put my arms down by their sides when I'm standing, when I'm not using the mouse. And it gets really painful. Like if I just sit down in front of my desk and rest my hand on the, the trackball mouse, which seems like the right place for it, I end up just kind of putting too much pressure on it mm-hmm. and really messing up my wrist after a while. So I started using the standing desk full time a couple of weeks ago. And within like two or three days, I had developed all kinds of back pain and <laughs> pain in my ankles. And mm-hmm. so it's like, this is getting ridiculous. Um, so I went back to sitting for a couple of days and then my hands started hurting again. So I went back to standing for a while and then my back started hurting again. So at this point, it's I walk into my office. I'm like, all right, choose your pain. What do you want to hurt today? <laughs> and uh, I'm mostly relying on the standing stuff because, frankly, I can work if my back hurts or my legs hurt. Uh, it sucks, but it's not that bad. And I can do more to get that stuff in shape with exercise than I can with my wrist. So, you know, I've been spending more time on the rowing machine and more time with weights. So I think I'm just going to keep standing as much as possible and avoid sitting and avoid resting my hand on the mouse and avoid, I'm such a slouch when I sit, Mm -hmm. which is like, I'm definitely the cause of all of these problems. It's just (laughs) unlearning those habits. I've tried to unlearn them and I just don't even think I can. So the better thing to do is just use a totally different working position. Anyway, that's my ergonomic update. Do you have an ergonomic update? Uh, just a little bit. In the yeah. last couple of weeks, I've had a fair amount of time to work on my laptop as a laptop, not docked and plugged into a keyboard and mm. had more time to work with the lovely keyboard on Apple's laptops. And no, it still sucks. It's, yeah. um, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't have a problem with key travel. I actually have the first generation one. And so... no. Yeah, like, the second generation. Is it the second? Yep. Okay. Yeah, you, you got yours June 2017. Okay. So typing on that keyboard is fine if all I'm doing is typing and I mm-hmm. never need the escape key and I never need the arrow keys. I yeah. would actually be like huge portions of my problem with that keyboard would be fixed if they I just had the half height left and right arrow keys. That would solve... 60% of my problem. And the other 40% is I just need a physical escape key. I'm just not yet ready to do like a Marco Arment recode caps lock as an escape key. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to retrain my muscle memory in that way because I work on multiple computers. Mm-hmm. And so having to make that adjustment on all my computers just sounds like a pain in the butt. Um, I'm really hoping that whenever that next laptop comes out that it has the Apple apology keyboard. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, to, to, I don't really need F keys for anything. 
so the touch bar is fine and there are some nice things i really like the volume adjustment and and the screen brightness adjustment that's all very nice and and analog but i i need the escape key guys yeah so anyway that's the extent of my ergonomic fun yeah i had that laptop for about two years and the best thing i can say about the touch bar is that i've forgotten that it existed until you mentioned it today <laughs> like it just i used it when i had it and i don't miss it now that i don't have it oh it's just yeah. kind of like it's definitely handy and neat i used it a lot in the notes app for formatting and i used it in email and i used it in xcode but when it's not in front of me, I, I just forgot that it was ever even a thing. So another quick mini topic today. Um, today, hacking with Swift is kicking off 100 days of Swift UI. Uh, Paul Hudson is a pretty awesome Swift teacher and has a just a fantastic resource for people learning Swift. And he also kind of fills in the gaps where Apple's documentation leaves you wanting more. So he's got a really good set of resources about everything. And he wrote a bunch of mini articles and videos about Swift UI at the beginning of the summer and has spent some time recently turning that into a 100-day course that's free for everybody to take. So if you want to, to do it, today is the day to start, and then we will end on December 31st. So it's kind of nice that 100 days left in the year, 100 days of Swift UI. So I'm going to be starting that this afternoon. And I'm giving myself a particular challenge about it, not just to do it every day. It's around an hour's worth of work every day. But one of my problems with tutorials and educational content is I tend to have, I have a tendency to start thinking of them as work. And then I start spending too much time on tutorials, not enough time actually doing work. So part of my challenge to myself is to make this an after work activity only. So after I do my six hours of development and or consulting work for the day, only then can I dive into the 100 100 days of Swift content or anything else that I'm working on. But I'm really trying to break the habit of like, oh, I just spent an entire day working through, you know, four chapters in a, Ray Wenderlich book, like that's great, but that's not really productive. I can learn a lot that way, but I actually learn much more when I take, when I spread that out over a long period mm-hmm. of time. So I'm trying to break that habit as well. I, it causes an interesting thought for me that there are different points in the learning process. And so when you're first starting to learn something, like if you very first want to pick up Swift, Mm-hmm. I think it works well in large chunks and probably in core brain time. Mm-hmm. Like like really being able to give that learning effort the best part of your brain each day when you're getting started. But if you're then expanding knowledge, I think you're actually right in that that's the perfect time to go, I'm going to do a little bit more of this every day. Mm-hmm. And I think that that not only makes better use of your brain capacity, but also amplifies your learning because you're getting consistency out of it rather than full immersion. Yeah, I'm hoping it'll kind of help me build up that habit of learning something every day. Mm-hmm. 
but I also want to break the habit of kind of using tutorials as a way of procrastinating against difficult problems that I need to work on. So it's a little bit of both of these things. So anyway, that's our mini topics for this week. What's been going on with you? Uh, still parser stuff. Yeah. Um, so just before last week's podcast, I'd made a bunch of progress and said I was going to do some stuff right after. And I did. I sat down and expanded the parser pretty significantly in just a couple of hours after last week's podcast. And then along the way, almost by accident, did something a little weird and had to kind of step away from it for a while and give my brain some time to figure out whether what I'd just done was something that I wanted or not. Hmm. So let me get into a little bit about how this thing works. Um, in general, if you're looking at a FileMaker calculation in total, it's really just a single expression. You know, and so an expression could just be the number two. Or two plus two. Or a function call with multiple parameters. Or eight function calls concatenated together with ampersands. Like, but each of those is really just one expression. And so... I got kind of caught up in this idea of looking at it as a collection of constants and identifiers merged together into an, an expression. Mm -hmm. So constants are things like numbers and strings. Um, an identifier is a name of a filemaker element. So a field, a table, a function name, a variable, that kind of thing. And looking at it this way, I could kind of come up with some sort of common logic for what are the naming rules for things in FileMaker, and then I could apply those in all these different situations. Okay, so I just go, oh, uh, you know, a field reference is an identifier, colon, colon, another identifier. Mm -hmm. And, and, that's just a thing. And then that can either be the entire expression or it can be a portion of an expression, like a sub-expression. Um, and looking at it that way, it actually makes it really simple to query. Like when the parser is done, what you get is kind of a tree of nodes that are like, well, this, you have one of these items, but that item contains these three other items which contain these other things. And keeping that to very simple, like these are constants, these are identifiers, these are expressions, made the language for talking to that tree very simple. Oh, well, the calculation is an expression. Is it composed of multiple expressions or just one? It's composed of multiple. Okay, well, what's the first expression in that list? Okay, well, it's this identifier. Great. Is that identifier composed of smaller bits? No. Okay. And it was just relatively simple to talk to that in that way. It was basically just array indexes. Give yeah. me identifier one, identifier two, identifier three, or technically starting at zero. Um, but as I was playing with stuff after the last podcast, I was working on variables. So dollar sign identifier or dollar sign, dollar sign identifier. 
And for whatever reason, between previous research that I'd never properly applied and maybe doing that when I wasn't properly rested, I actually defined dedicated rules for those and said, well, it isn't just an expression. This is a object called a local variable. And that object is combined, is composed of a dollar sign and an identifier. And I've got another object called a global variable, and that's two dollar signs and an identifier. Mm -hmm. And what happened was then I could just reference those in the definition for what the pieces of an expression can be. And it was really cool. Instead of just having an array of identifiers, I actually could get back and say, hey, are there any variables in this expression? You know, any local variables in this expression? Any global variables in this expression? And then once I had a local or global variable, I could say, oh, you're a global variable. What's, what's the name? What's the identifier that's this? Because that's inside the thing. And so going back to that field reference with a table name, colon, colon, field name, instead of just saying identifier, colon, colon, identifier, I could say, well, it's a table name, colon, colon, field name. But each of those things is just an alias for ID. Okay, so now I can say, hey, are there any table names in this thing? I mean, effectively, what I was doing was I was leaving information on the table. The parser was chunking it up and figuring out kind of what everything was. But then I just said, yeah, it's just an identifier. I don't care at this stage what kind of identifier it was. And so later I was going to have to go through and go, hey, I've got two identifiers here. Are they separated by two colons? Yes. Okay, now it's a field reference. <laughs> and so I was simplifying the parser, but making the work to figure out what the pieces mean more complicated down the road. Hmm. And on one side, now I'm getting all the information out that the parser generates. Like if it can get more specific, it gets more specific. It's going to make querying it a little bit longer code-wise, but dramatically simpler code-wise. Because I have to tell, when I start asking questions of this expression, I'm going to have to say, well, not just do you have an identifier. Do you have a field name? Do you have a table name? Do you have a local variable? Do you have a global variable? All of those things are now known. And so I'm going to have to kind of ask for each one individually. But when I ask for one individually, I will get an answer back if there is one. And so, again, it's going to be kind of slightly longer code in some ways, but a lot of my conditionals go away. You know, yeah. I, it doesn't have to kind of figure things out. And so when I'm done, um, the only remaining problem is kind of bare identifiers. Okay. If you've got a local field referenced in a calculation definition, FileMaker doesn't put the table name in there. It just puts the field name. Mm -hmm. But it that looks almost exactly the same as a custom function that takes no parameters because that also doesn't have anything around it. It's just 
a name. And so I'm going to have to tell the difference between those, but now I can actually have a category for undetermined identifiers. <laughs> and so I can run through the calculation and go, hey, any undetermined identifiers in here? This. Okay, great. Let's check these lists and figure out which one it is. And then once I do, I can actually recategorize it. So like, nice. no, you're actually one of these kinds of identifiers. Um, I mean, it sounds really goofy, but it's almost a, it, it's not really a 180 degree shift, but it's a good solid 90 degree shift in kind of how I'm looking at the problem. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 I avoided it before because it was, it felt like it was going to make things more complicated or for that matter, I avoided it because I just didn't understand how it was possible. And what I end up with is the code for the parser is more expressive. So it's going to be a lot easier to make alterations in specific sections as I run into bugs. And the code that, um, that works with it later will be simpler. Um, and it's a so, pretty big win. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is. I mean, it's a little tough to describe without kind yeah. of looking at it in this tree structure. And I apologize to our listeners. Um, so you could, if you were so inclined, you could write a quick blog post about this. And we can link it in the show. It could be a good way to mm, okay. you know, show the listeners and me what you're talking about. <laughs> I... I may well do that, but it almost certainly won't be out by the time this episode releases. Okay. Um, but that may be something I can knock out, at least even just to have a couple of visual references before mm -hmm. yeah. the next episode hits. Yeah, throw them on Twitter or we can, we can put them somewhere. Yeah. Um, and so while I've got a bunch more to do with the parser, and catching more variations and things like that. One of the last remaining big decision points that I have is whether to do the parsing and then have a separate thing that runs through the parsed tree and figures out what those uncategorized identifiers are. Or whether I want to imbue the parser with that knowledge. Hmm. Okay. In order to do that, the parser would have to receive like a list of field names, table occurrences, and custom functions. And honestly, standard functions. I'd have to kind of give it a database to work with. And I don't like that option. <laughs> I'd really like to kind of keep that outside my parser handling code. But on the flip side, what that means is knowledge of the tree structure and what all these names are starts spreading out into the rest of my program. Yeah. Like, I don't necessarily want to be talk. I'd love it if at the end of the parser, it actually gave me back XML that looked exactly the way I wanted it to. 
as we kind of previously discussed a couple weeks ago, I'm more and more leaning towards that answer. And so if I give a portion of the parser some knowledge of what these ident what these entities are, I can keep all of that nicely encapsulated into the parser and just the output of the parser is what FileMaker's XML would look like if I was the one specking it. Hmm. So I just can't imagine like showing this to somebody, including me, where you just like, <laughs> look at this XML. And then I did some some things with, with question marks attached. And then I got this XML. I'm like, that's nice, Dave. <laughs> Um, I, I get where you're coming from at this point, I've done it so much and I'm used to the tools that we have to work with in the XML parsing libraries and things like that, that parsing a chunk of XML is now largely trivial to me. Oh yeah. Which like, is just... like from an outside perspective, it's just like you turned some chaotic text into some other chaotic text. I don't see the difference. Oh, it, it's, just, it's actually it's, worse because the calculation definition before was just a nice clean string. It looks exactly like what you would see in FileMaker. And I hmm. then turned that into XML and made it worse. <laughs> um, nice. But... Uh, but the, yeah. this problem or this this problem or this topic is I think it's a really good example of how much you've learned in a short period of time and how that knowledge has built on itself where if you look listen back to maybe right before DevCon, as of now, you're just figuring out that you didn't know that it was possible for you not to know about this problem. <laughs> And now I, you know that. Yay, R&D. Yeah. I, I separate kind of R&D from development. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the research component. Is this possible? How is this possible? What does the tools for this look like? Well, it's research and Dave. <laughs> research and Dave. Yep. And then just development. Yep. Yeah. So, so yeah, as far as that, that, previous thing was concerned i'm kind of kind of leaning towards one pass um just to kind of keep all of these things encapsulated yeah it would be kind of one little area and actually more that i think about it because identifying field names becomes complicated when i would then have to know like all the table occurrences and what the base tables are for each of the table occurrences so that if I had a particular field name, I could say, okay, based upon the current context of this calculation, which table are they actually talking about? And I think what I can actually do, and this will require some more R and D to establish is as long as I know what the standard functions are and I know what the custom functions are, anything that isn't one of those two is a field name, hmm. right? Because I've, I've categorized all the other identifiers, the variables, the function call, I mean, standard function calls with parenthesis. Like all of those have been categorized. 
So it's really just down to local field reference or function which requires no parameters. And so I don't need to be able to check both, at least now. Later, and, and this is quite a ways down the road, but when I get to the point of when I have to validate calculations, I'd have to actually do that work. I'd have to go, well, it's not a standard function. Is it a field? No. Well, then I need to raise an error. Somebody type out a field name or type out a function name, and I need to tell the user and tell the user where. And that's in validation. But again, I don't really have to do validation right now. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, just... I think that type, the type for this object, whatever you call it, should just be the shrug emoji. So it's either this or this or I don't know. Oh, crap. Joe. Joe. Sorry. Uh, because periodically people will pop up with a fun little demo in FileMaker where you can use like emoji as field and variable names. Now, I wouldn't worry about supporting that because it breaks on Windows anyway. People are doing it in Apple stuff and it, you, you can kind of get away with it, but it's not really officially <laughs> supported. So I would not try to account for that. Like I, I, I have done this myself even by putting emoji on layouts in like text labels and file mm -hmm. files and they just break in windows when you open the file so it's it's something that's fun to do but i would not ever tell anybody to do that in a production system well i i wouldn't but if somebody did it i'd like to be able to support it which pretty much means i need to the good news is if i can figure out how to support emoji without making a canonical list of all the emoji i will have effectively gotten chinese japanese and korean for free okay yeah because it's so, just characters it, well yeah because it's, it's a question of do i enumerate the possible options or do i just say everything but this mm -hmm. and the problem is there's some weird way down in the trenches nitty-gritty weirdness about doing everything but this but it's one of those problems that like i'm going to keep coming back to about once every two weeks <laughs> it's probably the most rewritten portion of my code is like well what is a character like how are we defining a word and just keep doing that. And I, and I loop back to it every couple of weeks with a little bit more understanding of what went into it. Like two weeks ago, if I did that, I get this weird error message that made no sense and I couldn't figure out what was happening through Google searches. Now I understand what that error message means from bumping into it another dozen times. And so I can kind of go back to it and go, okay, now what does it mean? You know, I don't know. We shall see. Mm -hmm. We should really put together a little graphic sometime that the listeners can reference to figure out where we are on the stack of complexity. <laughs> <laughs> You're currently deep underground, uh, maybe mining for mithril or something. <laughs> and uh, I'm building a tree fort with SwiftUI. 
Yeah. I I don't think yours is less complex. It's definitely higher level UI stuff. But not less complex. And not I mean, less R&D either. I mean, I your your writing spells, I'm just casting spells. <laughs> well, maybe there's some of that, but the other thing is that I have the advantage of knowing that I'm working with a very, very mature tool. And so if it's not working, it's almost definitely my fault. I do. Not you have, have no such assurances. <laughs> <laughs> definitely so, not. Uh, on that topic, how's things going in your project, Joe? Oh, pretty good. Very good, actually. So last week I mentioned that I wanted to kind of wrap up an initial pass of features for a beta ready version of my app. And I did that and then I changed my mind. <laughs> you know, I probably could have put money on that. But proceed. Well, I, I did everything that was on the list and then I got it done by Thursday. And then I actually have a working app that is on my phone and my iPad and I've got cloud sync working so using cloud kit and I've actually started using the app for real data. But as I spent some time this weekend diving into core data and cloud kit more in depth, and we'll, we'll talk about that soon. Um, I came across one little fact with cloud kit that makes me hesitant to start opening it up as a beta yet. Mainly that right now my CloudKit schema is in development mode. As soon as I put it in production mode, it becomes immutable. Meaning all of the entities that I have now and all the fields that I have now will exist for all time. I can add to them. I can add new entities or add new fields to a table, but I can never remove from that point on. So I really want to spend a little extra time making sure that I've got that schema. One, make sure I have everything that I need in the schema and making sure I, two, make sure I don't have anything that I don't need. So as I've worked over the last couple of weeks, there's been a couple of times where I've turned a field into, or turned multiple fields into one field or vice versa, like really simplifying things with actually using it. So I don't want to rush that out. Um, but in terms of overall, like what I set out to do last week, I would say it was mostly successful. So what I want to talk about today is what my project actually is. Like I've been real ambiguous about it all summer and I want to stop being ambiguous about it and talk about what, what it is I'm making and then maybe have you kind of grill me with any questions you have. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to preface this with the fact that I'm really bad at the messaging part of a project. Like I haven't really written a story about the app, really defined what it is. I haven't been that great about talking about what it is. So this week I started working on an app launch field guide that I purchased last week. Um, and it's really good. It's basically a, a huge set of writing exercises and brainstorming exercises to help me try to clarify this stuff. But I've only just begun that process. So I hope to kind of refine this over the next couple of weeks or month or so 
But uh, that's probably the hardest part about this project is figuring out how to intelligently talk about it. And then, you know, drilling that down into a couple of sentences or a single sentence that I can share with people publicly. That'll be even more difficult. So that's my caveat about everything we're about to talk about. So the app that I'm making is basically an app that tracks dates at its core. Uh, Uh It's something that I can use to track personal milestones. And I guess that's kind of the idea in a nutshell. It's a way for me to track important things that have happened in life. And so a good example is I'm a recovering alcoholic. So I've got my sobriety date in there. I've also got things like when I quit smoking, which still kind of baffles my mind that I smoked for so long. (laughs) um, Also, you know, I keep a list of every job I've had and when I started there and when I left there. So things like that. And I've kept this data for years. I need to spend some time diving through my notes and figuring out exactly when I had this idea for an app, but it was one of the projects that I decided not to do in 2016. So that's how long I've been kicking around this idea. And I've had the data in various formats over the years since I didn't have my own app for it. So I've had it in FileMaker, I've had it in Airtable, I've had it in day one with lots of images attached and stuff like that. Um, But I really decided to do this project because I just, I've been using things like it. Like there's an app on my phone called Days Ago that I've used for years to track just a handful of these things, but it's really just a single list of item. Each event just has a single date for it and I wanted more advanced features. So I want, I wanted multiple lists of things that I could look at independently rather than just one big list of things. And I also wanted certain types of events to have a start date and an end date. So a good example would be Mm -hmm. the employment thing. I started this job this date and four years later on this date I quit. And I want to be able to figure out the difference there. Um, And then I want to be able to view this data in relation to itself. So being able to look at a timeline and say, you know, of the total timeline, how much of this event was how much of the timeline was consumed by this event and where where did things overlap, things like that. Um, so it started off as a really simple project that I was going to knock out in a week or two between deciding on the project and WWDC. And mainly because I was kind of derailed on an AR app at the time. And I was like, I'm just going to wait for WWDC and uh, see if Apple has any solutions to my problems. And I don't even know if they do. They may. I got distracted. <laughs> um, Apple has problems for your solutions. Yeah, <laughs> they do. So that's kind of 30,000 foot view what the app is. It's a way for me to track events and milestones, date ranges. So from a technical standpoint, the app is made up of two entities. There's a timeline entity, which is just a list object. It's got a name an icon and a color. So basically just three ways to identify it. Um, it'll, it'll also have a little bit of sorting metadata associated with it, but that's not important right now. And then there's the event entity, which are the child objects. Every 
event belongs to one timeline and no more. So it's a, a too many or a one to many relationship from timeline to events. Mm-hmm. And the events are a simple string for a name, a date, and then a Boolean toggle to include an end date, in which case it becomes a date range. By default, everything is just a single date. Then you can include a date range. And then an optional notes field. And I'm wrestling with the idea of attaching images to it. But I've got concerns about that. Um, And then there's some derived data at each of those entity levels, like on the event, uh, there's a little calculation to show how long ago the date was. So how many years, months, and days using some stuff right out of foundation, mm-hmm. which is pretty nice. Like just a text formatting, a date formatting string thingy. Um, same thing with the end date. And then one to check the start date and end date duration. So how big a chunk of time was this? So each of these events belong to a timeline and the UI of my app is essentially as it stands now, when you open the app on the phone, you've got a list or a UI table view and UI kit parlance of timelines. And each timeline has a, a circle filled in with the color that's selected for the timeline and then a white symbol over top of that for whatever icon they picked and the name of the timeline. I may expand this with like a subtitle to show some metadata below those things, but right now it's just a list. So you tap on a timeline and it takes you to another list of events. So I'm calling this timeline detail right now because it's actually technically the detail view for timelines, even though most of the details (laughs) are entities. And this list has it's sorted by date uh, descending so the most recent stuff is on top i may add a toggle in there at some point but this list will always be sorted by date either ascending or descending the other list can be sorted manually by dragging and dropping things around so you can kind of organize your timelines together in certain ways the event view, you can tap on that to show an event detail, which right now is just basically a nice formatted table view where it's just you know a long column of fields and labels. But I'm probably going to turn this into something more graphical and interesting to look at, particularly something that could be shared as a snapshot of you know, just turn this view into an image and share it with somebody. Um, and then there is lots of data entry views. So if we go all the way back to the top of the stack on timelines, we've got an add button to add a new timeline that brings up a modal view to type in timeline names. Like there's a color picker, there's an icon picker. I'm pretty proud of those. They're nice, fast, easy to use. They don't overload the screen. Uh, this is done in a modal window, which has its problems in Swift UI. And then, uh, yeah, you, you awesome. can kind of subtitle every single one of these points. Kind of has a little couple of problems in Swift UI, but just, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so there's also a modal data entry for editing a timeline. Those are separate views. I used to have them as one view, but it, I found that Swift UI 
really performs much better if it doesn't have to perform any kind of conditional operation at the view hierarchy, particularly with, with compiling things. There were certain types of things where like, you know, if in edit mode, then show this, else show this, that would take my compile times down from a second to 45 seconds. Oh, geez. Yeah, all of a sudden, like, Swift is like, I don't know what to do here. And every time I'm going to have to figure it out again. So, like, yeah, let's keep it simple. Um, oh, that's yeah. So... And that's on an iMac. Yeah, a very oh. fast iMac with an i9 processor. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that stuff will probably get better over time. But right now, God, I hope so. <laughs> and then uh, at the event level, there's an add event screen where you type in your date. There's a little uh, star toggle. It's just a custom control that toggles between two SF symbols to favorite something. Um, there's the date picker that works like pretty much any date picker in iOS. There's the toggle for include end date. If you select that, there's an end date that gets populated. And then there's a notes field, which needs to be replaced because right now UI text field or the Swift UI version of a text field doesn't support multi-line text. So that's broken. So I actually need to, when you edit notes, I actually have to, to instantiate a UI kit view controller with a text view on it to allow people to enter proper notes because I'm not okay with shipping a single line field like that. But I'll do that at some point. So yeah, that's that's kind of the what the app is now. Uh, it doesn't sound like much. It looks a little bit better than it sounds. And I'll I'll try to get some. I'm going to try to write a blog post about this stuff today or tomorrow, and get some screenshots on my website about where it stands. It's very I, stock UI right now, but it'll start to get its own look and feel over the next couple of weeks. I think in general, from the screenshots I've seen, it looks a lot better than it sounds. But okay. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Some of, some of what I do when I'm thinking about how to talk about a project ends up kind of coming from two directions. And part of it is, is like a lot of the things that we do, there's bottom up and kind of top down. Mm-hmm. And top down, I start thinking like almost in name terms. It's like the name informs the flavor of the identity. And then the way you talk about it can feed back into that. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can also go naming wise to go with, hey, here's just a weird word and I'm going to imbue it with all the qualities that I want, which gets you right down into the nitty gritty from the get go. Um, yeah. We'll talk about the name in a future time, but I could, I could make it a trendy tech company and just have the word timeline with no vowels in it. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not sure how you would pronounce that, but no, that's not its name, but I do have a domain already registered in it. I'm not sure if I need to do anything trademark related, but okay. it's probably overkill. Just making sure you've got a domain name or something is probably more important. But mm-hmm. um, So there's a couple, so that's kind of like the, 
those layoffs that I described are kind of the core data entry stuff, just how to get data into the thing and how to quickly find an event and look at its data. Um, but there's some other stuff I want to do in a more visual manner. And I've got really, really, really ambitious plans for this stuff. And I don't even know if a lot of it's possible. So I'm going to start with stuff as easy as possible. So the timeline detail view, that's basically just a list of events. I'm going to try to make a version of that, maybe even starting this week, that is more graphical in nature where the events can, like the, the size of the content region around the event is determined by the size or the duration of time in between that event and the next event. So imagine um, a timeline with a start date and an end date for one year. And if an event is happened at the beginning of the year, it can just be at the top of that timeline. If it happened at the, end, the beginning of the year and took three months, then it would take up a quarter of that year graphically. Right. And that, that could mean it expands like more of a chart or I, I kind of use white space to fill that in. What I like is having the idea of the events as little capsules and then um, tiny little subtitles between them to show between these two objects, here is the, the span of time between them. Mm -hmm. And maybe some lines connecting them. It's kind of hard to describe in audio form. I've got some mock-ups that I've drawn on the iPad. But uh, all of that stuff sounded really, really hard in UIKit. But with SwiftUI, it sounds much easier to just play with shapes and mm -hmm. loop through stuff and you know add padding and add frames and stuff, be able to manipulate all of this stuff. Because SwiftUI is a good data entry framework, but it also has a graphics framework. Like it's also got all kinds of stuff to do basic graphics and interactive stuff and animations and yeah. So that's the rabbit hole I haven't gone down yet because I wanted to get some of the the more important stuff done. But that stuff will, once I figure out what that looks like and how it behaves, that will really much drive the branding of the app of you know what the app icon looks like, what the website looks like. Mm -hmm. and then every timeline will have one of those i may even get rid of the timeline list view or the uh, timeline detail view that lists all the events and just replace it with this other interactive object or i may have a way to transition between the two right on screen but i eventually want to and this will not be coming in version one but i want to have a multi-timeline version of that where you can say you know look at all of my timelines from start to end and see how they overlap. So see, when I was working at this job, these four important things happened in my life. Mm -hmm. be, able, be able to do that kind of cross-referencing stuff. Or and, how did how did my personal projects overlap chronologically with my professional projects? Yeah, exactly. Like a, a good example for me would be what podcast was I making during what type of work I was doing <laughs> stuff like that. Um, it's also surprisingly, I'd, I'd never really intended it for this use, but I've been using the timelines. I made a timeline for a website project that I'm working on, and I've got a dozen or so events over the last three months that have happened. 
just to give myself an idea of how this is going because, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, not well. <laughs> it's turning into a very Kafka-esque project where nobody wants to make an answer, say an answer to any question. Mm. And we call it to the castle. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a little accountability tool of like, hey, you said you were going to get me this by this date and you said that on this date and it's been 43 days and you still haven't gotten that so it's almost like a little lightweight project management tool as well so i i I guess in some ways this is kind of a gantt chart for events and timelines in a way but Mm -hmm. a gantt chart is not quite right no i could definitely represent data in a gantt chart type of way but it doesn't quite do the same thing so imagine a Gantt chart with another dimension or another axis added on to it. <laughs> yeah. So when I do the more advanced timeline comparison referencing, I also want to spit that out into AR because I think that would be really fascinating to walk around the timelines and zoom in and out of stuff and, and uh, be able to resize the timeline make it really big make it really small stuff like that but that's also way far down the line yeah i can i can see like give me the timeline for everything that i've ever tracked all laid out in multiple rows and just being able to stretch Mm -hmm. in both directions and then slide the entire timeline back and forth kind of scrubbing it across your view space in your face yeah yeah Yeah. it's definitely some good stuff so that's kind of what the app is Uh, like i said i've got a lot of work to do to you know refine that story and figure out how to talk about it and hopefully we can talk about that here over the next couple of weeks. So I want to touch on the core data and CloudKit stuff briefly. I'll try to make this short. Um, but I got the, I've been using core data the entire time in the project. So with switching to CloudKit this year, now that core data and CloudKit can start working together for the first time in a way that's supported by Apple, it was really a, a very minimal set of changes. So changing the type of NS persistent store to an NS persistent cloud kit store, and then adding some entitlements to the app and then setting a Boolean toggle to true. So I had given myself a week or more to spend on getting cloud kit working and it took about five minutes. <laughs> and this is the type of stuff that like, yeah, this is why I'm developing on Apple stuff. Like as much as their documentation bothers me, as much as it's been a bad beta year, they do give you some pretty magical stuff sometimes. Yeah. And it you know, took years to get to this point with CloudKit, but they, it's basically as simple as it can get for adding this type of feature. And my app, if you use Apple Notes or anything like that, and you've seen multi-device syncing, my app now has pretty much that exact, exact level of reliability to it. So there, there was only one syncing issue that I noticed over the week since, or since Thursday, since I've had this. And 
I thought about trying to troubleshoot it, but then I noticed the same issue happening with Apple Notes. And I think I cursed myself because I was telling Dave on the call last week that I've just never, I've always had really reliable results with CloudKit. <laughs> and then I said that and I noticed some syncing issues that, that day. Sorry. But I actually think it was more to do with the the iOS 13.1 beta 4 update that I installed on Thursday. So it's this is a good example of when not to troubleshoot stuff. I'm going to leave it and just look at it later. But last night I went back to a WWDC talk about core data and CloudKit that I watched on June 6th. And I didn't get it then. And my notes from that session were like lots of questions and shrug emojis and upside down emojis. And like, basically, <laughs> I have no idea what's being talked about here. And it made a lot more sense last night, having worked with this stuff for a while. Um, but there was the, there was two words that the presenter said that I fell off the couch laughing because it was just the most Apple thing I've ever heard. And he was talking about the way that this particular demo app was collaboratively allowing the editing of notes from multiple devices by taking the notes field, instead of making it a property on an entity, making it a related property where each little bit of a notes field, not necessarily a word or a phrase or a sentence or a paragraph, but just a bit, an arbitrary bit of stuff could be its own record. And then having the devices reassemble that later on. And this is called eventual consistency. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like everything about Apple makes sense when you hear eventual consistency. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's, um, there's a topic that I'm trying not to research further called conflict-free replicated data type. It's a, it's an idea in, in computer science about how to deal with uh, distributed data edits and really fascinating stuff. And it's the stuff you can do in core data. I, I don't need to go to that level of detail. And right. I'm, I'm standing there last night looking at this Wikipedia page and like back away. Cause if I don't back away now, this is going to be the next three months of my life. Because there's nothing in your app as it currently stands where you're planning around multi-user or collaborative editing or aggregation mm -hmm. you, but you do have multi-device yeah issues do have multi-device to think about so okay. i need i do need to account for situations where i may have opened a record like a detail view or even more importantly an edit view i open the edit view on my iphone and then something happens i get distracted i, I close the app or minimize the app or switch to something else. And then later on, I open that same record on the iPad and maybe I decide, oh, I don't need this record and I delete it. What happens the next time I go to my phone and what state is the UI? Right. Um, or maybe that interruption never happened and I'm just, I've got it open on my phone and then I delete the record on the iPad. Then what happens to the phone? So Apple has some really good best practices to follow about, um, I forget the exact term, but there are, I think they're called query generations, where I basically, when I create a query or fetch request, I can basically put my manage object context in one of these query generations. They're like, okay, you are working off of this state. 
And every time you do an update, you can update to a, a later generation of that. But the UI is going to be based off of one of those generations. So if other stuff happens later on, I can receive notifications about it and refresh if needed. But if it's not something that affects what I'm working on, I can ignore it. So this is the type of stuff that is, I'm going to have a lot of fun with this type of work. <laughs> um, and I guess the coolest thing about the Cloud Kit and Core Data stuff is you don't really have to do much with the Cloud Kit stuff. It's make a really good Core Data app and use these advanced features that have been refined over 15 years. And then this system takes care of abstracting all the Cloud Kit stuff for you. There are still hooks into it to do more advanced stuff, but I don't need to do any of that right now. But if I ever wanted to make a web app for this type of data, that's a possibility. Or if I wanted to, I don't know if I can, like from a policy wise, I'm not sure if I can write an API for this type of data, but if you know, I wanted to pull my timeline data into a FileMaker database, mm -hmm. you know, I could do it that way. But I'm for the time being, I need to be okay with myself with shipping an imperfect sync solution. Because this is the type of thing that I could spend the next two years on mm -hmm. uncovering every single edge case and coding around it. But I, that's just not a productive use of my time. Mm -hmm. It's better to have a reasonably reliable system. And what I mean by reasonable is it's reasonable for you to edit a record on your phone or your iPad. It's not reasonable for you to ask for both for $4 or $5 or whatever this app is. Right. So I, I basically need to prevent that type of stuff from happening, not support conflict-free replicated data types and eventual consistency. Yeah. Or, or at least just stop it from allowing you to get into a state where the UI is effectively locked up. Mm -hmm. Like you're still on the modal edit, but there's no longer a record to edit. And yeah. so like your cancel, your, your commit won't work and your cancel fails because of some weird edge case. Yeah. yeah. So I need to account for that type of stuff without doing the crazy stuff. So we'll probably talk about this a lot in coming weeks about the, the things that I do need to account for, like, you know, how, how do I deal with the UI on the iPad when the iPhone reorders everything? Um, do I refresh it then or do I wait for the next time they come back to that view? Stuff like that. And a lot of this is, Dave kind of raised this with a question last week, and I don't have a way to just make CloudKit sync. When you're using CloudKit, that's just not an option. I, I can't just make a pull down refresh and call the, you know, reinitialize CloudKit or, you know, initiate sync function. None, none of that's possible. This happens automatically for me. And as a user, I'm kind of used to that. Like with the notes app, there's no way to force a sync with a notes app. If I need to, I force quit the app and relaunch it. And I think a lot of people end up doing that. It's not the best in my opinion. Like I would rather have a manual sync, but Apple doesn't provide it and they're really building the expectations in their apps that it doesn't exist. Right. So I need to kind of be okay with that, even though that's not really what I prefer. So yeah, that's kind of where the project stands. It's 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 been the hardest part of the project has been figuring out the, how to get the core data stuff working with Swift UI. 
because core data itself is really mature and has some really powerful features in the UI kit. Um, and I kind of, I learned just enough about core data to be able to use or benefit from those really powerful features without necessarily understanding how they all worked. And those things aren't available in Swift UI. So I had to kind of go to a lower level of, of using this type of stuff. So that part has been probably the most challenging technical part of the project. And uh, it's getting there. And I'm pretty happy with the way it's going now. So in terms of what I'm working on this week, um, I really want to focus on the new visual view for a single timeline and its events. So I'm going to try, I've got at least three totally different ways that that could look. And we're going to just spend some time prototyping those out and see what they look like. And then what is feasible and performant in Swift UI. And uh, that's really going to be the big focus this week. And then also working on that app launch field guide and kind of doing some of those writing exercises. Very cool. You're almost certainly going to ship before I do. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> like I said a couple weeks ago, I'd hope to have this out in, I mean, I initially hoped to have this out in around iOS 13 time. But that was before I switched to Swift UI, which kind of derailed everything. Um, I'd love to have this out in October. I kind of want to plan this around as much of a boring news time as possible to see if I can get some attention from you know the Mac stories of the world, other people like that. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily want to release this during the next Apple TV launch event or something. <laughs> right. But yeah, I think version one will, like I'm pretty close to a version one now and I really need to, I need to refine some of this visual stuff. There's a couple of reporting categories that we didn't really talk about today, but back at that very first level of the app, there's things like, there's a feature called on this day, which will find things in previous years that happened on the same day of year. Um, there's a perspective mm. view which will function similarly to on this day, but it will look forward and backwards 30 days. So you can say from this point of the year, okay, you know, here is the anniversary a month ago from this or two weeks ago or two weeks from now for this. So just be able to kind of get a quick glance at what's, what's around you in time, but in past years. A very simple all events view that will just kind of uh, from a FileMaker term, like a, a, an advanced sub-summary layout that sorts everything by date and then by timeline. And then a, a favorites view. So any of the events can be favorited, but I wanna just throw all the favorites into a list at the top level that you can get to quickly. So those things will be coming. And then much, much later would be the multi-timeline visual interface with the you know crazy cross-referencing checks. I definitely need better words for this stuff, as yeah. you can tell. I, I as you were talking, I thought of a a weird case that you might want to account for okay. somewhere in there. And it's, this is something, this is an event that I would like to function as a date range, but mm -hmm. I don't have an end date yet. Yeah, that one, like, like an open-ended thing. Well, th this is, I've got a, a history of, of my entire job history and what 
jobs I was working on on particular dates, but I'm working on this project now. So I have a start date, but the end date is effectively today until yeah. tomorrow when it should be tomorrow. And, and kind of, I'm always inside that range until I finally close it off. Hmm. Yeah. I, I thought the same thing. I haven't accounted for that yet, but it's definitely on my, I should do this too list. Okay. Basically just open-ended date ranges from a UI standpoint is you enter a start date. There's a toggle to show end date or include end date. And then when that shows the date field, it could show another toggle above it of open date or currently active. Like there's, there's two Boolean values there, but really just representing three states. Yeah. I'm not sure you need an extra switch because if I say, here's the start date and there is an end date, but then I don't fill in the end date you could probably assume that's an open-ended one, mm. right? Or, or am I missing a case? No, nah, the way I've built it, maybe this is a problem, but I've kind of, re- if you have an end date included, an end date is required. Okay. So I'd have to, yeah, need to think about that. Okay. Sorry for totally derailing your, <laughs> your, <laughs> your flow. Yeah. No, that's fine. And then something that we talked about off the air was uh, how to deal with sorting and this type of stuff. And Dave had a good idea. So I was thinking about, you know, for certain types of things, um, I want to base it off, base the sorting or where this shows up in the timeline based on the start date. But for other types of things, I want it based off of the end date. But having a granular event level setting was too much, I felt. And having an app level setting or just a consistent behavior just wasn't flexible enough. So Dave suggested doing it at the timeline level and then doing basically a calculation at the schema level to say if they're basically a third date field just called sorting date or display date or whatever you want to call it. And by default, it's the same value as the start date. But if include end date is set to true and is end date and the end date has a value, then set it to the end date. Or conversely with this new feature, if it, it's tagged as an open-ended event, then it's today's date, which I don't like that. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I would think that would have to be sorted by the start date because I wouldn't want all of your open-ended events sorting by today's date. That, would, that wouldn't really be valuable. Well, but it would only be sorted by today's date when I had told the timeline to to care about endpoints, which I think yeah. is valid. If I said sort descending by endpoint and these things are open, they should be at the top. Hmm. All right. Yeah, I'll have to play with different types yeah. of UI. I think I might need to like A-B test different versions of it with people when I do the test flight. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, that's kind of where it is now. So that's what I've been working on for the last, well, hold on, I can tell you. <laughs> for the last four months and two days. Has it been that long? Jeez. You've just found the sad part to your app. 